In the Red Sea, we have a very, very special situation just because of the uniqueness of the Red Sea with its gradients from north to south. We have a south that is very hot. We have a north that is comparably cold. We can basically see at what would the oceans look like in about 50 years from now if we look in the south. That's about the temperatures that we expect in the Great Barrier Reef in about 50 years or so. Welcome to Science Town, a podcast about the most unique research community on the planet. With every episode, we will bring you cutting-edge tech, science, and startup culture through the eyes of pioneering men and women. Their journeys cross disciplines and cross borders in the pursuit of world-changing science. Hello, my name is Nicholas DeMille. Welcome to Episode 1 of Science Town. In this episode, we'll talk to a number of marine scientists about the Red Sea and dig into why it's considered a living model for the oceans of the future. We speak with researchers about corals and capitalism, whale shark cartoons, their love of phytoplankton, and how robots might well take underwater jobs too. The Red Sea now, under normal conditions, I'm not talking about bleaching or um, heat events, just the normal conditions are temperature-wise already way above what we, what we see in the Great Barrier Reef. That's Manuel Aranda. He's an associate professor of marine science in the Kaust Red Sea Research Center. The temperatures they experience today here in the Red Sea would kill most of all corals in the, in the Great Barrier Reef. Mm-hmm. So naturally, the corals here in the Red Sea have already adapted. But as corals elsewhere, they have adapted very close to the thermal maximum, which means that, yes, they can tolerate these temperatures, but they cannot tolerate much beyond that. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the Red Sea is increasing in temperature like, like all other places, too. So on the one hand, it allows us to, to study how corals in the Red Sea have actually managed to adapt to these temperatures and maybe use these findings to find solutions to help corals elsewhere to also be able to resist these temperatures that they will experience, like I said, in the 50 years from now, or maybe even 100 years from now, depending on, the, on how good we do on uh, cutting our carbon emissions. And on the other hand, we have the north, which has very, very low temperatures, and they will retain a comparably low temperature profile for quite a long time. Now, the interesting thing here is that when the Red Sea, at least the way we know it now, was inhabited by corals, the only opening it had was to the Indian Ocean. So the corals had to come in through the south, and they were basically selected in this very high temperature environment. And it seems that through this event, even the corals in the north still have these genetic adaptations to... Uh, to be able to tolerate higher temperatures because they are um, in in this very northern region that we expect not to reach these critical temperatures until maybe 2060, 70, maybe even 100. Mm -hmm. We basically have a natural refugia for coral where we know that they should be safe for at least another 50, 60, 70 years. Because they're not anywhere close to that temperature. That they have been, exactly. Because like I said, they usually adapt to very close to the temperature maximum, but these have adapted to the temperature maximum in the southern Red Sea. Mm. But now they live in an environment that is much colder and will only reach these temperatures again in maybe 60, 70 years from now. So this could buy us a lot of time, and maybe these, some people think, will be the last corals alive, or at least the last real proper coral reefs on Earth. 
it seems that people fall into sort of two camps. One seem to feel that it's possible to sort of engineer a solution that can help, and the other's saying, even if you can seed or reseed reefs and whatever, uh, it's it's the temperatures and the rising salinity. Uh, I don't I don't want to make you pick a side, but I mean, uh, give your thoughts on on that debate. Well, I I think I'm I'm pragmatic. Um... If there's something we can do, we should try to do it. Yeah. The reason being is that these ecosystems are providing so much to our, not not only to our, to our world from an uh, ecological perspective, they're also economically highly important. Mm-hmm. We have about 500 million people on this planet that rely directly or indirectly uh, on these ecosystems. Mm-hmm. If we think about all these uh, island states in the Pacific, for example, where reefs are the main source of protein, they use the dead skeletons as building material for their houses. Ecotourism is, a, is an important source of income for these people. If these ecosystems are lost, then these people will need another source of income. They need another source to sustain their livelihood. Mm-hmm. And there is not many alternatives out there. Apart from, from losing these ecosystems that provide an immense biodiversity that we haven't even started to really understand. One of the main problems we have right now is that our economies are built on exploiting the environment. Mm -hmm. And we're now basically paying the price for it. So we're reaching a point where we're exploiting the environment, where where we're at the brink of this resource breaking down. The question is, how long can we do this before it really breaks down? And what are we going to do beyond that? So one of the ideas is exactly this, to see these environments not as a resource to be exploited, but like a natural asset, Mm -hmm. capital asset that, if um, exploited in a sustainable way, can completely reform our economies, going away from an economy that is built on producing and exploiting towards an economy that is built on finding novel solutions, technical solutions, better ways to do things that allow us to increase or you could say to net preserve these ecosystems, to basically build an economy around the preservation of ecosystems. And with preservation, I don't like this word because it somehow sounds like maintaining the status quo, but we need to actually go beyond that. We need to increase these resources. We need to find means that allow us to increase the amount of coral cover, to increase the amount of mangroves that we have, of seagrass beds, of forests in general. And to have an economy that actually lives of these of using these resources in a sustainable way. You're listening to Science Town, brought to you by Kaust. So part of what I like about being a biologist is that you're also an explorer, right? So yeah. that's this very old idea that you discover new worlds and new things. I, I think there's still a lot to be done in that regard. It's just on a different scale. That's Christian Volstra, professor of genetics of adaptation in aquatic systems at the University of Constance, speaking with my co-host, Ben Stevens. So you have to go into the deep ocean or you have to go into a very tiny scale in order to discover like completely unknown things. 
we wanted to find the so-called deep-sea corals in the Red Sea. And deep-sea corals are essentially corals that live in the absolute darkness. So they don't have this mutualistic relationship with the tiny plant cells. They simply just feed. So the deep Red Sea is a very warm environment. It's 21 degrees Celsius, whereas all other deep-sea oceans are 4 degrees Celsius. Right. right. And this is kind of the textbook knowledge. So it's a very unusual environment, and people thought that there is, it's not possible that corals live there. So we went on a cruise. We had this what is called ROV, remote operated vehicle. It's essentially, it's a submarine with a robotic arm that you can use. So we found the deep sea coils. It was very exciting. And we collected them and we did some stress. But the whole time I was also thinking that this is very clunky and there's no better way to do this. So, And you know how it is when you have a problem on your mind. Sometimes you relate everything back to that problem. But in this case, House announced the grant and Stanford, the robotics lab, was interested in doing something with cows. And I essentially pitched this idea that they should build an underwater robot. <laughs> so it's really the first of its kind that's never been attempted before. Wow. The idea is really that you not only can collect things from the deep, but you can manipulate the environment. The whole idea of this robot is that of a robotic avatar. And the way you control this robot is literally by putting on a robotic glove and you can manipulate the robot in his novel environment where you can't be. So it's good because you can use the same tools, you can use the same methods, and it keeps the human portion out of trouble. Think of many situations where you want to have a robot avatar doing the job for you. So the deep sea is one. Then, for example, after earthquakes, if you want to do a search for certain things in that environment or if structures are not stable, you can always send the robot. So this robot is the first of its kind. It's basically really also the idea that the robot is a structure that is that is your personal avatar in that new environment that you could manipulate as if you would be there and to the extent that we actually implemented haptic feedback so wow, you can okay. literally pick up an egg from the bottom of the ocean with that robot or you can pick up a coin if you think about it it's a very delicate thing to do right mm. so coins if they lay flat are very hard to pick up because it needs a very distinct crab and eggs of course if you like crabs them too hard they will break so both of these things are this is the structure and dexterity of these hands of the robot so now we can actually do experiments in the native environment of where these corals live, which I think has never been done before. And how more generally do you see robots and artificial intelligence being brought to bear on marine research? Well, artificial intelligence for, I mean, I'm doing a lot of genomics too, right? And I think yeah. artificial intelligence will definitely have a place there. First of all, the volume of data becomes essentially impossible to like really cope with as a human, just because our life is not long enough to look at all the data one by one. Right. So you want a computer or a system that can essentially make meaningful first-order conclusions from the data you have. So this is definitely a place for AI. And then what are robots good is at predicting stuff, right? So mm -hmm. one thing, for example, is that 
We are interested how corals work, but we also want to know where are the places where, where we can find corals or where you have extremely resilient corals. And this is, for example, where AI can play a very, very big role. If you feed it enough data of all the places where you actually find resilient corals, then the computer or the AI system based on that is able to make meaningful new predictions. And I think this is the area that is probably developed most heavily right now because it's where we have the least complete understanding of. So we have... Mm -hmm. One tool that is called MPA, Marine Protected Area, so the idea is that you have actually areas that are under conservation because they provide um, extremely valuable sanctuaries, but what we don't know is how environmentally resilient those sanctuaries are. So AI would actually help you to pick the right zones that require special attention or protection. Right. And finally, in, in that predictive frame of mind as we look 30 to 50 years into the future what does the red sea tell us about the future oceans potentially so first of all and i think that's the important message that a lot of people forget the organisms can adapt to extreme conditions mm -hmm. i think this is the most important story in the red sea that, that we find organisms in an environment that is reflective of how of with the conditions that are supposed to be in the year 2100 in the Caribbean. What we are lacking is the time frame, how long it takes organisms to get there, right? Yeah. And I think this is also what the Red Sea is good for, because apart from being extreme environment, is also an, a very strong gradient. So what does it mean? So in the north is colder and the south is warmer. And by going from the north to the south, you can essentially start to move forward in the future, right? So for right. example, in the deepest south, in the furthest south, it's like the conditions in whatever, 2150. And if you go in the middle, it's like in the year 2075 and so on. Mm -hmm. So via means of this gradient, we can actually track what it takes or if there are specific things that you need to change while moving forward in time. And I think that's also a prospect that is it's not explored enough yet, but where the Red Sea is a perfect system, that you really have a time machine and you can determine how much time you go forward in the future. And you have this all-in-one system so you can do a comparative analysis. Crossing Disciplines and Crossing Borders, Science Town. What made you come to the Middle East in particular to, to study corals? Oh, definitely to work on those corals living in those really extreme environments. They're living in the hottest place somewhere. It's, you know, it's extremely uncomfortable when we go and work in those environments in the middle of summer. Diving in those conditions, always at risk of overheating, and I'm just continually amazed that the corals can survive there, or at least corals from some species can survive there. That's Emily Howells, a postdoctoral research fellow at the University of Wollongong. I think really that while the universal threats to corals, so even though here you have corals in the Red Sea and 
the Arabian Gulf, they are the, living in the hottest places on Earth. They're also really living at the edge of their thermal limits. Um, particularly in the Arabian Gulf, they're suffering frequent bleaching events, so they're probably some of the most at-risk corals in the world. So we really have limited time to understand how they have adapted and how we can harness that knowledge to improve reef futures everywhere. In terms of finding out what mechanisms they're using, I think we found some evidence definitely that we see that coral hosts have a unique genetic makeup up there. So if you're looking at the same coral species within these extreme environments versus outside, you'll certainly see there's different genetic variants that have probably been selected for over many generations that has allowed those coral animals to live there, currently only for some coral species because there's only a subset of Indo-Pacific corals that live in the Arabian Gulf. Um, as we was talking about before, they also have these unique symbiont partners, unique algal symbionts, which are only abundant in the Arabian Gulf and are very rare outside of the Gulf. Yeah, to me as a whole, it says that there's not just... Because a coral is a complex symbiosis, it's not just one partner in that symbiosis that's important when we consider how they might respond to climate change. We need to consider all of the partners separately and how they interact together. Is any of this uh, being sort of productively transferred into solutions for the GBR? Like, is, is that uh, thought to be possible in any way? Well, we would have to see how they perform under all kinds of conditions. Uh, I can't speak so much about the Red Sea, but particularly in the Arabian Gulf, it's a much more saline environment. So when you take the symbionts out of there, they may... And there's probably some evidence to suggest that they're not performing as well in these kind of normal salinities that we would see on the GBL. Does a more saline environment... Um, is it more nutrient-rich for the coral animals, so they need less from these symbionts? Uh, I don't think that there's any evidence to support that. I think it's just a different environment. So you can't kind of take any organism specialised from one environment and just transfer it over to the other one and expect it's going to perform well over there. You know, Mother Nature's done a really good job of fine-tuning animals to their existing environments. So I think on the GBR there needs to be more work understanding what's going on there, whether it's unique symbionts or unique things happening in the coral host. And that's kind of where I'm at at the moment, where I'm no longer living in the Middle East and I'm back in Australia. And do you think that um, that that's going to have an applied, uh, that there's any chance for an applied uh, sort of solution? And, and, and I don't mean to push you towards sort of applied solutions, but I think uh, in the popular imagination, that's kind of where all this is heading in a way. Well, I think that before we consider applied solutions, we need to really understand better what a population's natural capacity is to adapt. So by looking at that, what's happening within a single population, we can get a better, we can kind of refine our predictions of what their chances are for adapting as oceans warm. Um, But at the same time, we get information about what are the, you know, what are the genetic variants that do confer heat tolerance versus the ones that uh, uh, confer heat sensitivity. And we can take that information and we could put that into applied solutions, such as selective breeding more heat-tolerant corals or introducing more heat-tolerant genotypes out onto reefs. But I don't think we're at that point yet because before you can look at applying changes, you need to get a full understanding of, of natural potential for adaptation.
Whale sharks are, for sharks, they're they're one of the more well-studied species of sharks. So they are sharks. The name is confusing. You know, the whale shark thing is the first thing I get asked. So is it a whale or is it a shark? And there's this really great cartoon out right now that's like a... Uh, it, it's like two panels and it shows like a whale bathroom and a shark bathroom. And then it just so, shows a whale shark with like the, ah, like emoji face going like, which one do I pick? <laughs> so they're sharks. They pick the shark bathroom. Right. That's Kaus doctoral student Royale Hardenstein. And as you can tell, her work is focused on understanding whale sharks. Their scientific name has a lot of debate because the original like publication actually had a misspelling and it was supposed to basically be like, um, a descriptor of their teeth because their teeth are vestigial so they're not useful anymore same thing with other filter feeding sharks like basking sharks they have little tiny teeth but it essentially is like velcro so they're just little little bitty baby hooks that don't do anything things that make them sharks is all anatomical like you said so they have the gills so they don't breathe air so they're not mammals like us or whales or seals or sea lions that need to like come up to the surface and breathe air one of the things that makes them particularly challenging to study unlike whales they don't have to pop back up to breathe i didn't know that right? yeah so they yes when we are looking for them we see them up at the surface feeding but um, that's just because that's, that's just because where that's the where the food is. is at that point in time. So if they dive okay. and they don't want to come back up, they don't have to come back up. So they have gills. They breathe water like sharks. They have to be in the water to breathe air properly. In the water, yeah, air in the water. Yeah. Right. So they're called ram ventilators as well. Okay. So they're one of the kinds of sharks that needs to be moving and needs to continuously have water flowing over their gills in order to breathe. So there's some kinds of sharks and actually some of the sharks that they're most closely related to that have these really cool ways of pumping water over their gills when they sit on the bottom. Mm-hmm. Mammals have, uh, you know, thick layers of blubber and whale sharks, it kind of looks like blubber. Their skin's actually like about 10 centimeters thick. So they have like that black kind of rough shark skin mm-hmm. that's made up of what's called dermal denticles. So it's essentially little teeth on their skin and that's also why we use their like their skin on the top as the best place for us to get easy genetic samples from them because they're constantly sort of refreshing yeah so that and then they're they also just have some really good dna content in them so you can get some dna out of those and it i mean uh, most other sharks you have to like catch them and take a fin clip or something like that i see you just can't really easily do that with whale sharks there's um one there's one or two places in the world where I know they do blood draws on whale sharks in like the ocean and that's impressive. Wow. Um I think there's a group in the Galapagos that's doing those. Mm-hmm. Um and they're also really interestingly doing ultrasounds on whale sharks because they thought the huge female whale sharks that they were seeing there were all pregnant. And it turns out not all of them are. Just because a shark is fat doesn't mean it's pregnant. <laughs> so just treat them like people. How, how <laughs> Don't, dare those researchers? How dare they? We wouldn't do that to people. Why would we do that to sharks? We do have some evidence that our sharks hang out in the Red Sea for okay. quite some time. Whale sharks we think reach maturity or, uh, you know, 20, 30 years old, kind of that range. 
so we've only been studying the aggregation here for 10 years. Okay. Um, and so we're only catching a snippet of time. We kind of have a weird aggregation mm -hmm. in that we have about equal numbers of males and females oh, I see. that are showing up. Most yeah. aggregations are severely male dominated. Hmm. So the aggregation off of Tanzania, it's over 80% male. And even Djibouti, right outside the Red Sea, has a male-dominated aggregation. Mm -hmm. um, so, where, so, so where are the ladies at? Where are the ladies at is a great question. <laughs> and that's that's one of the things that um, uh, Dr. Jesse Cochran, who worked uh -huh. here before me on the Whale Shark Project, is particularly interested in. He's trying to figure out, okay, so if other places aren't seeing nearly as many females, why do we see so many? Give us the sort of meta picture for whale shark research. Um, why are they a good um, organism to study? Mm -hmm. um, and what are we learning about our oceans based off of what we know of whale sharks? I think one of the reasons that they're a good organism to study is that they're, they're a draw for tourism. Mm. There's a lot of places um, like the Philippines where there's entire uh, towns that their economies now run off of whale shark tourism um, and people going to there to see whale sharks because they know they're probably going to see whale sharks when to they go swim there. with them to swim with them yeah because mm. they when they have those little bitty teeth they're not going to bite you they're not going to hurt you they filter feed on tiny shrimp and crab larvae and uh -huh. you know little worms and that kind of stuff that they're not really they can't harm you in any way unless you get up in their face and you're trying to ride them and they don't really like that. And then, you know, they're, it's not pleasant to get whacked with a whale shark tail. Yeah, there's a but... whole Instagram ecosystem now of yeah, people yeah. getting way too close to sharks and, oh, and things. Oh, yep. <laughs> people getting... It's, I, one of the best things is if, you know, look, don't touch you know, if you're right. in the water with any kind of animal, right. there's no reason to grab on its fin and ride it. There's no reason to touch it. Like the best thing you can do is just observe from a distance. Um, right. I think there's one of those kind of like, uh, I mean, I'm Instagram obsessed, but it's one of those things that says like, you know, take memories and pictures, leave only bubbles when you're diving. Like nice. don't leave anything else behind. Just do your thing. Plankton are the, the, you, the organisms that are really widespread in the ocean. You were talking about the, the whale sharks, for example, or yeah. these kind of large organisms. I know they are very appealing to the general audience, but if you want to really understand how the, the, the sea, the oceans work, mm -hmm. you, you need to take into consideration plankton. Associate Professor of Marine Science Shailu Moran studies plankton in the Red Sea Research Center at KAUST. Um, these large organisms, of course, are very important. They are crucial for the maintenance of biodiversity and right. the, the uh, functional ecosystem. But uh, the ones responsible for everything are planktonic organisms. They start the food web, the food chains, by photosynthesizing. So every uh, plants at sea are planktonic organisms. Phytoplankton, we call them phytoplankton, so are these tiny microscopic unicellular algae. Very tiny, but they are doing the same as plants on the ocean, in, in, in yeah. land. So they are the ones photosynthesizing and starting the production of organic matter that then will be 
channel through the rest of the of the food web is started by plankton. These are really crucial for the functioning of the ecosystem. I mean, they are the ones starting fueling um, the ecosystem, and then all the organic matter somehow um, is processed at one or other point in their uh, in their fluxes through planktonic organisms. They are uh, remineralizers of when dead bodies, for example, imagine a shark, a shark or a whale that goes down to the bottom. At the end, it will be bacteria remineralizing and returning these uh, organic nutrients into inorganic forms that then will start the, um, the process again. In terms of global climate change, mm-hmm. what sorts of effects do we see in the plankton populations in particular? As uh, we have said so many times, the Red Sea is currently the warmest deep ocean uh, or deep marine basin in the world. So that means that uh, the temperatures here are really uh, not comparable to any other temperatures on on Earth. One thing that is really unique to the Red Sea is that if you go deeper in the water column, I think I mentioned before that in the Pacific or the the Atlantic Ocean, if you go to uh, 2,000 meters depth, you get... uh, uh, temperatures of four degrees around Cooler that. Here we have a temperature of almost 22. It looks like uh, temperature is really favoring the smaller um, cells, and that we have documented at least at some uh, sites in the, in Europe, in the north eastern Atlantic. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have documented really that there is some displacement or substitution of the current species by smaller ones. It looks like this is also going within the, the small cells. Uh, they are becoming even smaller. Um, it could be that they, um, the same organisms become smaller uh, or they could be um, simply replaced by a smaller, a smaller forms. If you see also that plankton is becoming smaller and smaller, this has obviously an effect because their predators probably will be smaller and the size distribution of the planktonic communities or the size uh, distribution of the entire community, it really plays a role in the sense that this tells us a little bit how much of this carbon uh, will be eventually sequestered or could go to depths in which it's actually taken out of the uh, circulation. a lot of money and effort being put into carbon sequestration mm-hmm. um, through different means. Even some of our researchers here are doing it from sort of a material science aspect. Is there a possibility for harnessing phytoplankton <clears throat> in that way? Um, the results usually are quite, um, um, let's Maybe. say, com- yeah, mm-hmm. not, not clear-cut results, and there hasn't been really a proof that this will be a, a solution. Uh, it might be more interesting in this case, these uh, coastal ecosystems such as mangrove and the blue carbon, like they are really definitely sequestering. They are already sequestering lots of carbon in the sediments. And if we try and um, and protect these ecosystems, it might be probably much better the effort rather than trying to come up with this idea. So the, the answer, as usual, is we should be doing all the right things, not try to uh, throw one sort of narrow solution to sort of fix all the bad stuff. Exactly. I think that these things, like, we might have our conscience very um, happy, like, saying, oh, we're doing these things that are engineering for that. I don't see this as a really feasible thing currently, but this is my my opinion. Other people could, of course, see it differently. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you, Nicholas. 
Thank you to all of the scientists who took time out to speak with us for this episode. Science Town is produced by Mark Bowes, Alex Aries, and Ryan Yang Yang. I'm Nicholas DeMille with co-host Ben Stevens. Thanks for listening. This podcast is a production of King Abdullah University of Science and Technology, also known as KAUST. You can find us on all major social channels, wherever you get your podcasts, and at sciencetown.kaust.edu.sa.